This is an alternative universe. See, there aren't any textbooks that teach about these principles. It's dangerous if the government gets in the business of propaganda. We need journalistic integrity now more than ever. Warning, you're listening to the Agenda 31 podcast with Corey Ive and Todd McGreevy. The thing, remember, names are for things. That is why the United States respects the sovereignty of the British people and their right of self-determination. For good reasons, we don't want the government to be the lead on that. Due to the unique division of political authority in the United States, U.S. citizens are residents in every state and should not attempt to copy the strategies employed by the hosts of the Agenda 31 broadcast without first consulting legal counsel. Do you have a license for this? Uh, motivation. What's, uh, what, what, what is my motivation? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with slavery, just so we're clear. As a U.S. citizen, you, you just don't own anything. You're just a, a user, and the government owns everything. And the assumption is everybody's a U.S. citizen. You know, you're going to have to shut up or I'm going to have you arrested. The Constitution, they told me, was not allowed. It was banned from the courthouse. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Agenda 31. This is your co-host, Todd McGreevy. And as always, being joined by... Corey Ive. Greetings, Todd. In the morning to you. Corey, this is episode number 126. We are recording live to tape at agenda31.org slash stream on April 2nd, Sunday. It's about 11.15 Central right now. And... We appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, Corey, apparently uh, Agenda 31 is not advertiser-friendly on the YouTubes. Uh, no. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. monetized video on that channel. You tell, give us a quick overview of what you did there. That's interesting. Um, well, that was just an, an episode I'd set up a camera at... Uh, that was before we moved. Uh, just set up a camera and recorded the show and then put the audio and the video it's just one episode of agenda 31 put yeah, it up on youtube a lot of podcasters do videos it helps you know uh, get it out there because a lot of people are youtube watchers it's just easier to browse youtube and listen and so forth right sure and and sometimes i have youtube on where i'm just it's easier to listen because of the way the computer is it's you know it's not necessarily a video you watch i definitely have a face for radio so it's better to listen rather than watch oh yeah um, but the, uh, uh, the content, the low risk, high reward article four, uh, centric content of agenda 31, uh, is not advertiser fen- friendly. <laughs> I can't, I'd love to know how and who made that decision over at the YouTubes that that's pretty funny. Did, which episode was it offhand? Does it matter? I mean, was it a, uh, you know what? I don't, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. It's, no um, yeah. let's see. I didn't prep for yeah, it. It's so okay, I man. Go look it up. But, no, as if one uh, of them's different than the other. I mean, we, we cover a lot of the same topics every show. Right. Uh, you, you know, what's amazing about that is you can find monetized videos on YouTube of people talking about killing the president. Um, yeah. you know, all kinds of stuff, sure. as long as it aligns with the left, you can say anything you want. It's incredible. It's true. It is. And, and this is certainly not a left-right show, right? No, I mean, no. as far as I'm concerned, they're oh. both, you know, the left and right wing of the same bird of prey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, this is certainly not a left-right show, but 
what I've definitely noticed in in the recent uh, I don't know year or so that uh, there seems to be a very heavily left concentrated accumulation of wealth or or power um, as the, far as in the what power as far as communication is concerned. Oh, you mean like on the meetups and the you're talking Silicon uh, Valley, you talking internet communication or what, what do you mean? Just no national communication, like Washington times, the, um, you know, YouTube, mm-hmm. all the different methods of communication. There are these left restrictions on it. I don't know how else to word it without sounding like, you know, I, I definitely don't want to sound like a Republican or something like that. Um, and I think we would define the left just to keep it pretty simple. Is and I'm going to ref- I'm going to call out Ron Paul's book, uh, uh, Liberty. And in there, I'm I'm not going to get the quote exact, but the effect the uh, the uh, the result of his what he was saying is that some people want to take loot. They want to take loot from one person and they want to give it to another. I think that would yeah, be a well, good definition. As of, long as they get to take a little off the top. Sure. Why not? Oh yeah. Yeah. The 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 left would be defined as centralized planning we know better about how you should live your life and we're going to through tax or coercion take from others and give to some privileged people so we can maintain our power that would be the and progressive you know if you look up the definition of that it's that 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 good can come out of planning good can come out of central control i find that to be an extremely elitist point of view Um, oh of course yeah now the the right that 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 we also eschew, if you will, uh, you know, I, I they have their own pockets of coercion, the so-called right. Of course, yeah. Um, and I, I guess you know, is there really a difference between the two? That the government grows. I mean, Reagan came in; he was going to abolish the Department of Education and shrink government, and it did nothing but grow. Bush came in, and they passed the largest entitlement program through the uh, Drug Act that you know ever to date. You know, back then, uh, with with the uh, subsidies to the big pharma, uh, so it's it's all folly. It, it's it being the 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 national uh, battle that that we're supposedly under between the left and the right. Paradigm where one is going to solve all your problems. Yeah, repeat that, please. Well, yeah, Can I you said re- uh, I just kind of jumped in on you. I just yeah. said the. Uh, the paradigm of you know the left or the right, one of them is going to solve all of your problems, and the other guys are always the bad guys. Right, exactly that paradigm. Well, one of the things that might make us uh, uh, not advertiser friendly is playing clips like this. This is a uh, author. I've been I've had this in the queue for three episodes. I just want to play it out there. I think you'll find it interesting. It's a, it's a it's about a three minute clip. Yeah, it's a uh, I got this in of all things my LinkedIn. Uh, inbox you know uh, I'm, on, I'm on linkedin and people post things on linkedin much like they do on facebook and it tends to be a little more relevant and and, and potentially uh cogent than than the facebook check this out let's see this is an author talking about a book called fed up about the federal reserve oops i had forgot to have the uh input plugged in properly here we go Danielle DiMartino Booth. I'm the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve. Danielle DiMartino Booth. That's her name. My apologies for butchering that for Ms. Booth at the beginning. I'm Danielle DiMartino Booth. I'm the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. I wrote the book because I had to write the book. I was compelled to write the book. I don't think I could have slept 
another night had I not started working on the book. I think that, that the biggest challenge is going to be to be able to reinvent an institution that has become plagued and, and weighed down by groupthink. The New York Fed actually had an objective task force come in after the crisis to try and determine how is it that none of us saw this big financial crisis coming? How could we as an entire institution have been sideswiped? And the determination of the task force was that there was an inability to dissent and an inability to say no and raise your hand if you saw that something had gone wrong. That pervasiveness, if you will, has infected the entire institution such that one of the titles of the chapters uh, is, is Group Stink. It's a play on words, but what harms the Fed so much is that they're plagued by group think and an inability to use the word no. The long story short is most economists in the world today uh, have been trained in a very similar school of thought. So you end up with uh, an entire industry, and in fact, the economics community has started to do some soul searching because they're realizing that the way they've been doing things has actually led them astray and caused the public to lose faith in the economics profession. But again, you have to have differing schools of thought in order to have different viewpoints, and that's not what the economics community today represents. And again, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot inside that one institution, but they're all kind of thinking in the same way. I think that, that the 77 plus baby boomers who we still have with us represent best the damage that Fed policy has done. They were burned once if, if you know, during their prime earning years by the NASDAQ blowing up. That was, that, that was a, a direct um, outgrowth of Greenspan's being overly intrusive during his reign. And then we had the housing bubble, which was Greenspan and Bernanke saying this can never happen. So the baby boomers took a second hit and lost quite a bit of their 401k savings all over again. And now, even as they're turning 70 by the millions and actually need to retire, they're finding that they can't be prudent in allocating their portfolios, whatever they are, because cash has effectively been outlawed. They can't make a return on it. So you've got pension funds, 401ks, IRAs, you name it. Not just of retirees and baby boomers, but of all Americans that are overly allocated to highly risk, risky assets like junk bonds and the stock market that are set to correct once again and take them down again. But if they had an alternative, if they were able to be more conservative, they would take that opportunity and run with it, but the Fed's taken that away. So this gal, uh, she was a Dallas Morning News uh, columnist for four years, and then from 2006 to 15, she was the uh, an advisor, that's her title, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, advised policymakers on potential systemic risk building within the financial system, briefed senior policymakers prior to every federal open market committee meeting, and speak to national and global audiences on the origins of financial crises. Whether or not she was paid for that, I'm not sure. She's a market strategist. She writes you know, newsletters. She has her own uh, financial services company now called Money Strong. I just found her, you know, the video is well done. Uh, you know, she wrote a book. I need to buy it and check it out. I just thought I'd share that with our audience because I, I think that the uh, the the heretofore uh, unacknowledged uh, uh, igno acknowledgement that there was group stink inside the New York Fed leading up to the crash of 0809 is uh, you don't hear that very much. No, no, you don't. I, I'd be very curious though 
if she comments on the effect of United States notes on uh, Federal Reserve notes, like if she even brings that up in that book. It'd be, it'd be great to check it out. Absolutely. I mean, since the Federal Reserve, the way it's set up, it's designed to run concurrently with United States notes. I mean, they're supposed to be issued at the same time and work uh, kind of as competing currencies to restrain um, an elastic currency that has, you know, absolutely no restrictions on it. Elastic currency being Federal Reserve notes, non-elastic currency being United States notes. And if you have one that just stretches way so far out of control, well, people wouldn't use it anymore. And they would say, okay, well, if you want to buy a gallon of gas with Federal Reserve notes, it's, you know, four bucks. If you want to buy a gallon of gas with United States notes, it's two bucks. And inherently that would force um, better fiscal policy, at least I think it would. The subtitle of her book is An Insider's Take on Why the Federal Reserve is Bad for America. So there might be some hope there for a, a door opener. Let's let's make a note to uh, check that yeah. out. Absolutely. Uh, so, Corey, you've... you've uh, and th- anybody that's new to the show, new to Agenda 31, we always hope we have new listeners. We do tend to cover a, a semi-wide range of topics, but they predominantly focus on uh, your... Uh, what, is, what is the lowest risk, highest reward activity you, we can take uh, in terms of holding government accountable? Uh, and we, one of those pathways is what we call averring Article 4 state citizenship, which we claim is a clear distinction between federal citizenship, also known as U.S. citizenship, versus being one of the people of the several states. Uh, and in between you know, that uh, uh, end of the spectrum, if you will, which is you know, some might consider extreme or difficult to obtain, uh, and, and where we sit today, there's dialogue about all these various and sundry uh, things that go on in between, uh, including uh, a Federal Reserve that is apparently bad for America, according to this author. Um, and so uh, you'll hear us talk about uh, you know, all kinds of different topics. Um, and, uh, you might, and, and by low risk, high reward, you know, holding government accountable, I have to bring to uh, bear one of the simplest things that you can do is engage with your local government, the local government. Uh, even though that we assert that the local government is a branch of the federal government, at every facet that you see, uh, there is a duality in place. You're, the governor of the so-called state you live in is really an agent of the feds. Uh, at the same time, that governor has sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, which applies to the several states. And uh, so we are asserting that it is uh, time, if people want to actually create real change and have real accountability, that uh, uh, understanding your history in your state, understanding uh, the nuances with regards to your state, con- the state constitutions where you live, are very critical. And of course, that's a hill that many people don't want to climb. Just too much, too much effort. You know, who who won the final four is more interesting to them. Yeah. Well, which I can't even tell you who won. So, you know, it shows you where my head's at. Right. Yeah. I couldn't either. Uh, I think I lost you, Corey. There are. There you are. You know, oh, did you lose me again? Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see the, I see the call quality um, thing go in and out. Right now it's green. So I'll talk real quick. Yeah. I wonder. (laughs) Um, I think I know what's going on. Go ahead. Keep going, man. All right. Well, um, uh, just just to kind of clarify that difference between Article 4 state citizenship and 14th Amendment federal citizenship, 
just picture uh, on a map in your mind, think of the United States, think of what it looks like. And the national government, it's domicile, even though the national government pretty much, op- well, not pretty much, it does operate in every single state. The federal government is located, it's physically located in the District of Columbia. And prior to the 14th Amendment, if you looked at the map, the District of Columbia was there. That was the only jurisdiction that did not have citizens of its own. Um, after the 14th Amendment, it began to have citizens of its own, but didn't erase the citizenship of all the people that were already there, all the state citizens. You know, you were either from California or or uh, Nevada or, you know, well, actually, Nevada wasn't a state yet, but California or Texas or Florida or Iowa or any of those states, that's where your state citizenship came from. And the difference of rights, for example, you may have... Uh, Iowa and California are very similar. In fact, Iowa has a long history of really helping California become a state. It was very much influenced by uh, by Iowa, but not so much by um, Louisiana. And Louisiana's laws are very different. So you could be a Louisiana citizen, and the laws that would apply to you were different than the laws that would apply to somebody from California. Does that make sense? Sure. Absolutely. Well, we've said okay. there's 50 ways to skin this cat. There's 50 different iterations of of self-determination that have happened in 50 different uh, states and pre- prior territories. And, and then the one, although California and Iowa would be very similar to each other, mm-hmm. in fact, maybe even indistinguishable, there's one jurisdiction that is different from all of them, and that is... Washington D.C. federal jurisdiction. If you're if you're a citizen and you are uh, subject to citizenship of a federal nature, then there's a whole bunch of evidence out there that says you don't have access to the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights. Are- yep. Thing from the last show or two shows ago, Todd, we talked about um, Map v. Ohio, which is a case that basically says. The 14th Amendment is applicable to the states in order to preserve the constitutional rights of state citizens. The the Bill of Rights in the 14th Amendment was applicable to the federal government. The states, at the time that decision was made, the states were being run by federal employees via the 14th Amendment because all the state governments had, for lack of a better term, they had all collapsed, either by... Uh, withdrawing from the Union from the Civil War, or in California's case, being duped into giving up sending in your own representatives and now needing to operate under the 14th Amendment. Well, to protect the state citizens, the 14th Amendment, which applies to the federal government, it applies to the states under that circumstance. Um, that that would that's my observation anyway. So I, I hope that makes it clear. I might have made it even more confusing. <laughs> it's one of the most confusing things there is, Corey, and we have yet to uh, to land on the proverbial elevator speech. And I I, I say that because I read a recent uh, um, uh, blog posting by Jason Freed or Fried. I can't remember how you pronounce his name. He's the founder of Basecamp, 
which is the right. project management tool we use. And uh, he was one of the uh, owners of, is he one of the founders of 37 Signals out of Chicago? They wrote the code Ruby on Rails, among other things. And he's a columnist in Inc. Magazine. The current uh, issue on the stands, April, has a column by him that talks about how we have to get rid of the the, the uh, so-called value of the elevator speech. It's a fascinating little uh, 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 short essay that says, you know, if something's worth explaining well, you know, either you, either you listen to what other somebody else's concerns are and then you can address their concerns. And, and if it takes more than 30 seconds to get it done, then if it's, if it's worth dealing with, it must be worth listening to rather than having to just, you know, get it into, you know, like the old proverbial pitch to the movie producer, you know, you better, you better hook me in 30 seconds or there's no funding, you know? And, right. uh, and, and so it's difficult to get this uh, very, uh, what our federal government has made extremely complex over and, and our public uh, disinformation system, also known as public education system. Uh, it's made it very difficult for people to understand. You made a video that we posted and it's available at agenda31.org uh, to anybody who has donated to uh, the cause here. Uh, you know, there's a little toggle I put on the, on the back end of everybody's user account that can, uh, I can make a blog posting available to those who donated or not. And we're trying to at least create some value for value here. Some people get access to videos that others that don't. Uh, anyway, your, it was your attempt of using a, a drone uh, as a tool and, and a pocket constitution and some uh, rope and string in a park to illustrate the Article 4 state citizenship concept. And we did get a uh, comment. I don't know if you saw that yet or not about it. No, I, I didn't yeah. see the comment. Yeah, it's, it's short, and it's from uh, a uh, double black diamond I guess they're a, a heavy uh, downhill skier. Anyway, this individual says, I tried to view the video from a point of view of not already understanding state citizenship, and I would have been totally confused. <laughs> it's such a confusing subject. <laughs> it's such a confusing subject uh, due, due, to, due, to our co- due to our cognitive dissidence. I think having actual flags on the ground that can be seen while you're talking to the camera and going from one side of the rope to the other would help. Also, more of a history lesson explains how the invention and necessity of U.S. citizenship came about for the emancipated slaves. So it it's, it's continues to be a work in progress, and, and uh, it being explaining what it is and why it's important. And I guess the simplest way I can try and put it is... Um, uh, as an Article Four state citizen, we believe that we have U.S. citizenship, but we're not a U.S. citizen. If you want to raise your hand and say, I am a U.S. citizen, that puts you into a whole nother realm of political injury. And it begins at the DMV for most of, most of you in modern times when they say, are you a U.S. citizen? And you say, yes, I am. And that's your... That's your uh, uh, your uh, fee, if you will, your um, uh, what do you have to pay when you get to the to the ferry? What's that word when you get on the the river sticks? What's that word when you the fair the, 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 uh, the fair the the big the something? It's it's your price of admission to uh, to to a privileged, nuanced, discretionary land where, as you showed me in a video, Corey, you can go eighty five in a sixty five. It's right. okay. You got a piece of plastic. You know, it's it's no problem. Exactly. So, in, in fact, well, yeah. you know what, Todd? You didn't comment on it. I don't know if you saw it yet or not, but did you see the letter that I have 
prepared. It's an affidavit prepared to hand to an officer. It's in with the registration. I did uh, upon demand for a driver's license. I did see that, and I'm and it, it. I didn't bring it up because I didn't know if we wanted to make that public, which can bring us to the topic we teased last episode, which our uh, avid listener Brittany uh, has broached, and that is, you know, in a nutshell. If you're going to if you're going to get results, you cannot telegraph via your podcast and your website what you're going to do, because the powers that be will know what your tactic is and they will make moves on the other side to thwart it. Yeah, well, the advantage the advantage is the tactics. At least some of that cut out. So if I'm completely off base on the interpretation, stop me. Yeah. But the advantage of putting things out there is to inspire other people to do the same thing, right? The, I mean, that's the whole point. And doing the same thing is reading through the Constitution and then getting yourself to a point where you qualify to hold office in one of the several states. If, if you can, if we inspire, you know, one person in every county to do that, the potential is incredible. You've brought so, this up many times, and it is a, an, a, a, an evolution of, of, of the tactic that is not only aver Article Four state citizenship and get standing uh, recognition as a state citizen, which is not a sovereign citizen, you know, exclamation point. Uh, right. And, but in addition to that, hey, there's nobody holding office. I'm going to hold office now in this one of yeah. the several states. And I do want to put a quick caveat on my previous statement about the DL being the entry point. Really, the entry point for most U.S. citizens is the birth certificate and the Social Security number. That's, right. that's truly the and, and those are requirements typically in the administrative divisions called states that you have to have those in, you know, in hand and claim you are those, those, those ends logist entities, those creatures of law, in order to get that piece of plastic. Now, there are supposedly... Many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of individuals with little pieces of plastic, Corey, that were never born on the soil in the contiguous United right. States. And are right. they under federal citizenship, too? Are they a U.S.? Do they, are they, you know, we're talking about undocumented immigrants, or pick whatever phrase you want to use, especially in California. I mean, it is kind of a unique thing over there, isn't it, that all these... Well, yeah. I mean... I mean, you, you have people who, if you or I committed the exact same crime, we would spend crime of years in jail. Which crime? And the, well, the crime of you know falsifying a social security number. If I use a fake social security number, or if I use a social security number... Dang it. You're cutting out. For purposes of getting employment. Ah, Man. Well, on my end, it shows we... Oh, no, there it goes. Now yeah. I got down to red on the Lame. internet here's what we're going to do i'm going to call you right back to start a new connection because okay. i think what was going on i was somebody was hogging the bandwidth in the house so i'm i'm i think okay. i've alleviated that i'll call you right back no worries stay tuned everybody we'll be right back here jingling a ding ding let's give it one more try here boom there we go and so if if you falsify, if you or I, because we were born on the soil, right? Falsified. If, if we yeah. if we falsified social security numbers, let, let's say I've got a criminal record, and I know I'm not going to get this job that I really need if you know if if they find out about my criminal record. So I decide that I'm going to go down to the exact same place that people who are here illegally buy 
social security numbers and identification documents and stuff like that. And I get set up that way so I can get a job. And I'm using a fake social security number or a number that I do not have authorization to use. I'm going to go to jail. Mm-hmm. And are, are the, the are, people who yeah. are uh, – well, wait, let me – let me get this. Let me just add another thing to that. Mm. If I'm authorized to use a social security number and I use a number that I'm not authorized to use, then I'm going to go to jail. The difference in in what I see from people who predominantly come from South America, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, they come here and in order to get a job, they get a hold of these stolen social security numbers. They're not authorized to use any social security number. So... When, because uh, uh, they weren't, they when, weren't a U.S. citizen to begin with. They're not U.S. citizens. They're not. They're citizens of another country. They're here. They call it undocumented. It means they're just not. They they've not gone in through what are the normal channels of of uh, international tra- transfer of citizens or whatever is the right term for it. But basically, they're not here by permission. They they're here by you know sneaking in. However, it is that they got in. The, the difference is they're not charged with a crime for doing that. They're de- you know, oftentimes they're given a deport- deportation order at worst, um, and most of those deportation orders are what's called a voluntary deportation. In other words, it's saying, okay, you have to leave the country now. You can't be here anymore. And it has absolutely no effect on them. So somebody who has absolutely no connection to the federal government illegally uses a social security number and they're just told they have to leave somebody who already has a pre-existing um uh connection to the federal government and its citizenship uses does the exact same thing and you go to jail let's circle back to the driver's license in california that there are uh i've seen you know headlines and i have not delved you know done a deep dive on on the the facts but I, what my perception is, is that there are hundreds of thousands, I've heard the term 800,000, quote unquote, illegals who have driver's licenses. Are all those people buying a fake security, a social security number? Or are they just getting a DL because that's the way California rolls? So they're able to get a DL by showing any form of ID, right? And it's under a federal mandate. In other words, they don't have to show a social security number to get a DL anymore, a driver's license. They, the most common document for people who are from Mexico, what they show is what they're called consular matriculation cards. So they go to the Mexican consulate, you know, right here in Los Angeles. They get an ID card from the Mexican consulate, and it's called a matricular card or something. I think that's what it is. I apologize if I'm butchering that. But it's an official ID from Mexico. And now they can use that ID to get a driver's license. And in theory, the driver's license is not something that you can use to uh, vote or, you know, anything else. But the driver's license is the gold. It's the what? Everybody says, let me see your driver's license. Yeah, it's the gold. It's the gold standard of identification. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So nobody says, can I see your passport or can I see your common law ID? You know, they, they hold their hand up and with their fingers about an inch and a half apart. And everybody says, can I see your ID? That, I mean, that right. it's exactly right. how they do it. Um, <laughs> or they'll say, can I see your driver's license? Right. That's funny. And so, you know, it, it, fair enough on paper, the, um, the card that, 
the the driver's license that's issued to people who are illegal aliens. And part of what they said was a, a, a reason why this should be done is that, you know, these people would have their cars taken away. You know, you go through a checkpoint and, you know, they get their cars taken away because they don't have a driver's license. And this is a way of preventing them from having their cars taken away. Well, now they're completely subject to all the crap, and it is a milking parlor in the courts. I mean, oftentimes I think these people would be better off no license and just risk having a, a cheap car taken away every few months. Wow. I mean, it's that bad. So, um, <clears throat> but with the driver's license, now, and, and this kind of moves on to the theme of the stuff that I'd pulled down, was the stupidity of the American people, particularly those resident in California. Because there is absolutely no distinction legally that your government makes between you and an illegal alien. There's no distinction in California, none at all, when you, when you have contact with like 99% of government. And this... Uh clip you sent me is this something we should be playing as part of this yeah yeah the well the clip was um let's see let me go to base camp so i can see what you're looking at because i have a good memory it's just short um this is that guy that was dealing with obamacare i believe john oh that's it okay so there's this what what struck me on this was because of a uh a well out here in california right now they're talking about this emergency gas tax have you guys heard of it at all not yet Uh uh-uh Okay, so the roads in, roads in California are crumbling, um, mainly local roads. The, the highways are still in pretty decent condition. I mean, there's a, a problem with them, but basically the, um, the state highways are, are generally in pretty good shape, the ones that I drive on. Um, I haven't driven throughout California in probably four or five years, maybe a little bit longer than that. But um, yesterday we drove up to Lancaster and took a look at the it's they're calling it flower geddon out here i got some amazing videos so um i'll post that but it has nothing to do with article four citizenship i'll tie it in somehow um but the, the interstate highways are good it's the cities the the city roads once you get off these roads that are now controlled by the state government uh, once you get into roads controlled by county and cities I mean, it is third world nation. It, it's horrible. You drive through L.A. and it's just crazy how bad the roads are. The roads in Tijuana, I lived in Mexico for a while. The roads there are better than the roads in Los Angeles. They're just crazy bad. Well, California already has one of the highest gas. Second to New York. The whole point of why these gas taxes were sold to the people a long time ago and why there's the DMV registration fees, which are crazy, which, by the way, the gas tax is running concurrent with an emergency vehicle license fee on top of what you already pay. And so all this money that they say you know was supposed to go to roads that you're paying, well, now they're using the exact same argument again, saying, look, man, if you're driving a car on the road, you got to pay your fair share because the roads are really bad, right? Well, where's the money going that they've already taxed you on? And, and this is kind of my point of the American people have been played fools a lot more often than just Obamacare. So I guess we can play this process behind people who are predominantly on the left, in my opinion, 
and feel that central planning is the way to go. Lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever. And not do but it. Okay, transparent financing, unless I have transparent financing, also transparent spending. I mean, the, this bill was written in a tortured way to make sure CBO did not score the mandate as taxes. If CBO scored the mandate as taxes, the bill dies. Okay, so it's written to do that. In terms of, in terms of risk-rated subsidies, if you had a law which said healthy people are going to pay in, it made explicit that healthy people pay in and sick people get money, it would not have passed. Okay, just like the people, transparent, lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever. But basically, that was really, really critical to getting the thing to pass. And, you know, it's the second best argument. Look, I wish Mark was right. We could make it all transparent. But I'd rather have this law than not. So it's kind of like his reporter story. You know, yeah, there's things I wish I could change, but I'd rather have this law than not. Whoops. Cool little stinger at the end there. There you go. Well done. Um, I'll put that on the, the blog uh, for the, on this episode, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he's basically describing the way government does everything. I mean, the part that was really caught my attention on that a long time ago was it the bill, meaning the Obama health care bill, uh, the Affordable Care Act, I think is what it was called, was written in a tortured way. And the reason why they did that way was so that the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, would not list it as a tax. <coughs> oh, because if, now I really see what's going on here. So they do the same thing throughout government. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow, we're having a little challenge with Corey's connection. The, the government's... Yeah, government's doing the same thing. They've been doing it for a long time. The Affordable Care Act is not the first time that using the lack of transparency as a political advantage has happened. This has been going on for a really long time. The The problem is you're already paying out on all these other things, and every time this happens, you're paying out more. And you have no standing as a U.S. citizen to say, no, I don't want to do this. You can jump up and down like everybody does. And say this is unfortunately unfair. not everybody does jump up and down, but go on. Well, I'm, the people who jump up and down, which are a significant number, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. But you hear people all the time complain about the problems. I mean, there, there's certainly no lack of podcasts or news agents or independent news or anything pointing out what all the problems are. But what the hell is the solution? What do you do? And you know, besides the the you know the final. Um, solution, which is employing the Second Amendment. I mean, that that's what it ultimately leads to. If every bit of the people's wealth is being eaten away, if everything is being eaten away, and pretty soon you're, you know, you're hmm. ultimately you lead to a hot war. But prior to that, what do you do? And what we talk about here is Article 4. It's not, it's not an easy solution. It's not this 30-second soundbite. It's, it's incredibly simple because all they did was trick the American people out of sending representatives under the Constitution is what's, what would be state citizens representing state citizens. They've tricked all the states into not operating that way and instead – operating by having federal employees come in and hold all those offices. 
And then they've combined that with tricking everybody into being a federal citizen instead of a state citizen. You put those two things together, and now the federal government's in total control. Oh, yeah. Well, we've repeated that many times on this show, and, and you know we do challenge everybody, what is your strategy to make a difference? And we're, we're attempting to make a difference. We do get some really good intel from, I should say, research, not intel, research from listeners uh, I think, uh, that, I always forget everybody's name. That's that one that just sent us, uh, last week, a bunch of screenshots of, of, um, court cases. Was that from, uh, Stuart or Scott, Scott Adams, I believe. I, let's see. Yeah, it was Scott Adams. I think it was Scott Adams. Yeah. And I just haven't had a chance to research all these screenshots and, and they're all, he also included, uh, it's like, it's got Luther V Borden, which we've cited that case many times years ago on the show. And, there's all kinds of information there. Um, you know, I uh, was doing a, a search in my inbox today for something in, in the email and uh, came across something that Merle uh, sent uh, over. Um, and it was a handbook from 1999, Corey. I think we've talked about it before. Guidebook Against the Pro Se Litigant. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was a passage in there which I'm going to read and I'll post this at the show notes um, that I thought was just really telling because it, it, the, the, the book, it's a little guidebook. It's 202 pages and it was published in 1999 by the national center for state courts and the anti-government movement handbook is what it's called. It was developed under a grant um, and it was uh, started by, uh, the State Justice Institute, the rise of common law courts in the United States, an examination of the movement, the potential impact on the judiciary, and how the states could respond. And it's the the intro talks about how this woman in Texas uh, was cited for no driver's license, no insurance, and how she fought it. And they bring up, um, let me just get to this passage real quick here, if I can find it. Yeah, let's see, 1846. There it is right there. Okay, they say, uh, the verdict of the county court was predictable. Caught driving without a license or proof of insurance, Sherry Skotka received a $350 fine from the Kent County, Texas court for each offense. But Skotka, during the stultifying summer of 93, was anything but predictable. Acting as her own lawyer, she appealed the county court's decision and requesting this Texas appeals court transfer her case to, quote, common law court of the United States of America, end quote. Her argument that as a, quote, sovereign citizen, she was outside the jurisdiction of Texas law or Texas courts. Now, I don't know if she claimed she was a sovereign citizen, but this is definitely some of the origins of, of uh, educating or uh, indoctrinating government to think that if you bring up the Constitution or common law, you're a sovereign citizen or claim you're a sovereign citizen. We've seen many, many versions of just people claiming that the efforts and behavior of an individual are, are, are being that they're claiming a sovereign citizen when they never even use those terms. The appeals court did not look upon her request with favor, noting that she could not even show that the common law court in the United States of America existed. This was not the first time the Court of Appeals had faced this sort of peculiar argument. From the Texas Hill Country had come a rash of such claims in the past several years. Don't you love that little flourish? The Texas oh, Hill yeah. Country. All from strangely similar cases, traffic violations, foreclosures, frivolous suits. Brought to court, the defendants usually operating pro se, that is defending themselves, would demand that the case in question be removed to the common law court for the Republic of Texas. Finally, in 92, the appeals court noted officially that there is no such thing. We hold, said the court, that the common law court for the Republic of Texas, if it ever existed, had ceased to exist since February 16, 1846. In other words, when Texas state government was organized, 
Right. I find that kind of interesting that they would even say that. If it existed, it ceased to exist, and they give a date. So here's the thing that I found, just to comment on this, yeah. to, to show you how they play the game, is I kind of doubt did prior to Texas leaving the Union, the courts that were organized under the authority of the February 16th, 1846 date, which I'm guessing is the day that Texas became a republic on its own, that those courts were probably not called common law court for the Republic of Texas. Right. Right? Like in California, I've seen people say they want the uh, California common law court and stuff like that. Well, if you read the the history of California, you'll find that the courts that they're probably referring to when they say that here in California, they're probably referring to either the district or the county court. And those existed uh, or operated under the 1849 Constitution. So what I'm getting at is I could see a judge having gone through um, like, well, filing the restraining order against the chief of police, the way they're able to purposely not have a meeting of the minds. In other words, they pretend like, oh, we have no idea what you're saying because maybe they could find one little tiny thing to get off. Yet on the prosecution side, there's a complete meeting of the minds no matter what they say. <clears throat> um, is been my experience here in California. Uh so when they say this, that, you know, if this ever existed is just a mocking way. It's just a way for them to mock the ideals that the person is going after, after being denied all of that. Because the, the courts in Texas, I, I mean, I know from uh, Rich in Texas who has sent pictures, you can find that the flag that they fly in the Texas state courts is a flag denoting executive authority. I mean, they have the United States flag with the fringe around it. And yeah, you talked about that a couple episodes ago when you did this solo show. I thought that was a really, really good uh, right-in-your-face observation. It is. It's right in your face because it's saying, look, hey, we're subject to presidential executive authority. And, um, you know, and the, the only citizens, uh, Article 4 citizens would just not be in that court. You know, if you're not in the military and you get pulled over by a military police officer and then they bring you into a military court. It's not a sovereign citizen tactic to say, well, I'm an American, but I'm not in the military. I'm not subject to these rules. So an article four citizen is not subject to the executive authority of the president in, you know, most, most things. I mean, I'm sure there's executive authority, uh, uh, things that would affect citizens, but the the president isn't able to just simply write up an executive order, completely bypass the Constitution, and have that executive order applicable to all the Article Four citizens. It is applicable to all U.S. citizens, and so they're they're two completely different governments, different jurisdictions that operate together, and but they've never operated together as obvious as what needs be what the way it needs it to be for the average person to be able to see, Oh, there is a huge difference. You know, I'm going to read the preface from this, this anti-government movement guidebook in a second here. And I just want to comment that 
I until I met you, Corey, I'd never heard anybody talk about Article Four state citizenship ever. And it was always, you know, why aren't we, you know, what what it being the, the struggle was always about uh you know, our rights are being violated. You know, how can they do that? You know, we need to stand up. Everything from Bob Schultz, who I brought up many, many times. I recently had a re-engagement with uh, a few weeks ago. He, I, I joined a, uh, a, a weekly call that, that Fred Smart hosts called the American Underground Network, and Bob was the guest, and they're doing an oral history of the We the People Foundation via this, this weekly call. And Bob recounted his efforts back in 2001, and it was fascinating, even though you and I have both, you know, talked many times how Bob is, you know, he's he's shooting at the same target, but he's just got a, a faulty arrow because he continues to have, you know, try and get standing to hold government accountable with U.S. citizenship, and that's why he, he can continue to just be cast aside is because of the lack of standing. Uh, but nonetheless, his efforts to raise awareness, I, I think a lot of people don't even understand what, what went, went down in early 2001. Do you remember that he was running full-page ads in USA Today and, and Wall Street Journal uh, with the help of uh, Joe Bannister and, and, and Sherry Jackson, former IRS uh, uh, employees who were whistleblowers about the IRS and demanding questions be answered? Do you remember this at all? I do, yeah. This like is which law was it that yeah required them to pay taxes? Yeah, there was lots of activity back then. This is the uh, during this time period. This is what uh, uh, helped inspire the film "Freedom to Fascism." Do you remember that film? Um, yes, with um, uh, what's his name, the the well known director. Yes, he 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 made the movie "Trading Places" among other things. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, he did that. God, I forgot his name. Yeah, it's uh, Ra- uh, Ross. Uh, um, Oh shoot! You'll think of it here in a second. Uh, but I will. I'll have it for you in a second. Yeah, but uh, you know, Aaron Russo. Aaron Russo. Yes, yes. And 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 this effort back in two thousand one uh, brought a lot to bear. And, and it remind listening to Bob on here uh, on that on that call was, I mean, he had brought so much to bear that. Uh, uh, he was on a hunger strike in 2001, and he was getting uh, the attention of some congressmen, uh, including, um, oh gosh, it wasn't, totally, I got some notes here. What was his name? I'll think of it here. Uh, oh, shoot. Um, it was a congressman. Oh, is he with a funny haircut? Oh, no, no, no. Um, Oh gosh, hold on, just give me a second. Yeah, they ran full page. Oh yeah, he told me he said on the show that they they had an account executive at USA Today that after a couple full page ads ran and there was some you know uh, kerfuffle out there about it, they the USA Today rep called him back and they were going to spend two hundred and fifty thousand more dollars. They had raised a bunch of money to run these uh, four full additional four full page ads. USA Today pulled them so they couldn't run them anymore. That's how much, uh, you know, they uh, cut out. They, they wouldn't allow them to run the ads anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Passed up a quarter million dollars in revenue for advertising. Right. Um, well, it's not surprising. I I mean, I'm, I'm convinced now that attorneys, um, yeah, they know what the, what would happen to their industry if people, separated, divorced themselves politically from the federal government, and then embraced their responsibility as a state citizen. It would devastate the the legal empire. 
You know, oh, the, it, the would be, it would be devastating. Roscoe Bartlett is a gentleman's name. All right, I apologize. Roscoe Bartlett. He was one of the few congresspeople that, that gave Bob an audience with regards to his questions that he wanted answered. And, uh, it, it, and Bob recounts the whole affair that, uh, uh, you know, this is when the, the Liberty Caucus was started by Ron Paul back then with 17 members. And so while Bob was doing his, uh, his uh, hunger strike, he visited each office to let him know he was on the hunger fast. And the last one he went to was Roscoe Bartlett from Maryland. And he said when he walked in the room, he couldn't re- help but recognize that Bartlett's office had a, a fruit bowl there full of pocket constitutions for people to grab, you know. And nice. Bartlett came out and saw Bob had one in his shirt pocket. And he said, why are you carrying that around? And he said it was a response to the petition um, uh, for redress. And he said Bartlett called his whole staff into the conference room. And, and uh, he read the First Amendment and got to the petition clause reading aloud to his staff. And he said, the government, and, and at the, the petition, you know, do you, I don't know if you recall, the, the right to petition for redress of grievances is protected in the First Amendment. It's the fifth element of the First Amendment. And right. it, it has never been adjudicated. It's never been brought to, to bear in terms of merits. There's no, there's no precedence on its uh, uh, meaning and, and significance. And that was, that's what Bob's built his life's work on. Is if you if you can't petition to get an and get an answer, then what good? You know, no any right you can't defend is no right at all. And uh, right, in fact, it, that was part of my petition to the Social Security. Yeah, uh, the petition for redress of grievance was because in my research there there's basically a theory. That there is no adjudication on it, but there's the theory that if you petition the government, if they're saying you owe money or you have some sort of obligation to them, and you petition. Uh, under the First Amendment for redress of grievance, and they don't answer, then they're not required to answer, but then you're no longer obligated under whatever it is that those uh, grievances were made. Um, that's the theory anyway. But there, you're right, there's no adjudication of it. It could go any way once you get into court, depending on how it's argued, everything else. And I would suggest that if you're a U.S. citizen, you would lose. Right, that that the whole idea that there would be some benefit because the government did not respond to your petition of redress of grievance, um, that you would lose because uh, being a U.S. citizen, it's likely the courts would find that you don't have direct access to that petition for redress of grievance. That that protection, that guarantee. Right. Uh, Bob said that Bartlett said after he read the First Amendment aloud, he added to the to the phrase petition for redress of grievances. And government has an obligation to respond. He said Bartlett right. did an audible on that. All right, and he said we're going to help Mr. Schultz get answers, and this issue goes to the top of the list. Everything we do in the office. This is according to Bob. What he said, Bartlett said. Okay, and and uh, then there was a news conference. I guess there's this thing called the House Triangle behind the Capitol building, where only Congress people have access to, and they can hold news conferences there. And Bartlett held one there with Bob. And Ron Paul was supposed to be there, but Ron Paul got called to the White House, apparently. And so he sent his chief of staff, Jeff Dice, with a prepared statement that said, my office has received uh, hundreds of phone calls and emails supporting Mr. Schultz. I sense they are sincere in their beliefs. Even though I strongly disagree with the hunger strike, I believe we can work with Congress and Bartlett to get answers, but they need to stop the hunger strike. The... um, the 16th Amendment was being questioned at the time, the validity of that, because of Bill Benson's book. That was part of right. this whole dynamic. And he says uh, the validity of the 16th Amendment is uncertain, but I support the petition and Bob's right to have answers. Um, and uh, so, you know, 
this is Bartlett and Ron Paul were the ones that were really giving uh, you know uh, Bob any any light of day at that time. Um, but where I'm going with all this is uh, the uh, Bartlett in, Ju- in late July negotiated on We the People's behalf by telephone with the IRS Commissioner Rosati and the U.S. Assistant Attorney General Dan Bryant, who was number three at the DOJ, according to Bob. And he he got them to commit to having a meeting with Bob to go over these questions. And do you remember any of this at all? Is this ringing a bell? No, no. Yeah, it, it, I don't. It sounds fascinating. It is. It's the, and this is the stuff that went on, you know, over fifteen years ago. That's hard for people to remember in, in our you know modern day you know tension span. And remember, this is two thousand one. Ding ding. All right, this is happening in right. the summer of 2001. Bob is bringing to a head the questions of taxation and petition for redress of grievance. And uh, through these uh, these efforts, um, they uh, they got Bartlett got a commitment from the DOJ and the IRS to have a meeting with um, uh, with Bob. But they said, according to Bob, according to Bartlett that they were not going to set a precedent that they were responding to a petition for redress of grievance from Bob. They would have this meeting under the auspices of a briefing with a congressman. So they uh-huh. were very upfront, like, we're not going to let this meeting you know, be that. And so you know, Bob, in his, in his usual way, you know, very methodical, along with the help of Mike Bodine, a fellow Iowan who's rest in peace. Mike was his secondhand man back then. Uh, you know, they turned it into more of a, a hearing, if you will. They wanted to have interrogatories and so forth, and, and really get to the you know meat of the matter, very scientifically, very very uh, uh, academically, if you will. Not not involved in politics, if you will. So he wanted to call it the truth and taxation hearing and so forth, and and was going to do a live uh, feed of this. You know, this is before Facebook Live. This is this is totally right. innovative back then. Yeah, in two thousand one, that's a big deal. Yeah, he was doing all this kind of stuff back then. And uh, it was getting all lined up. It was set for September 22nd and 23rd. Uh, and then, as we all know, <laughs> the towers came down September 11th. Right. Everything just got set aside. And there was a whole bunch of you know stuff that happened since then. They tried to have it in February, you know, backed off because of the anguish in the nation and so forth. And um, Anyway, it just goes on and on. There's so so that that's the, the what I'm getting at, and what I what I took note of during that call, um, and I and, uh, was the 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 current so-called uh, resistors out there. We've talked about this a little bit. I mean, I just I just have to laugh about the so-called resist movement going on. If they if if right, <laughs> look what Bob got, and and the We the People Foundation, which is made up of hundreds, if not thousands, of supporters monetarily, volunteer time. He's not an island unto himself, but he certainly was the leader of that effort. Uh, you know, I mean, really, you think you're resisting something? You th- you know, how about doing a fast on Capitol Hill where you get the attention of the Liberty Caucus in Congress and get a face-to-face meeting lined up with the head of the IRS and the and this number three of the DOJ? You want to resist something? You know, wh- what are you really doing? You're you're on Facebook just complaining about Trump. Boy, you're resisting well. Jeez. Right. Right. So, so circling back to this, yeah, to, to this, I sent out a tweet. Yeah, I tweeted. I tweeted, and I used a hashtag, and I changed my avatar. I'm resisting. Um, this, uh, this preface of this anti-government guidebook, I think is, is, I think it's interesting and, and 
insightful. It says there is a. This is written in 1999. Recall, all right. So this is this is you know two years before what I just explained. Bob was up to. There is a movement afoot in this country today that is made up of disaffected and often dispossessed Americans who are seeking a better way through a wholesale return to their view of the past. This movement has been called many things, the anti-government movement, the sovereignty movement, and the common law courts movement. Regardless of the name attached to the beliefs and the people who follow them, one common denominator exists, a feeling of despair rooted in personal and pecuniary loss and manifested in a new defiant mistrust and spite for the ways of the current government. This guide focuses on the ways in which followers of these movements impact the operation of our state court systems. Never mind, you know, I mean, this is, in other words, hey, we're going to acknowledge these people are sincere in their beliefs, but we're going to have to deal with them because we do not want to upset our apple cart we have over here. Right, exactly. You know? Not, not, not. Hey, we got a, a deal with their, a, with their, the merits of their case. This is all about how to sidestep the, the the tactics of people who are sincere in their beliefs. Does it say where the grant came from for this? Uh, it may. It doesn't in the introduction. But I haven't I can seen. See, okay. Yeah, it would be interesting to note that. I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the reason why I brought that up, you know, my complaint to the uh, California Judicial Commission on the judge down in. What are you on Gabriella's case? Yes. Has still not even been looked at. Of course not. Right? The, the, not even. It's been months. And the, when I called, I called just a week ago to find out a little bit of information on, you know, what is the time period? When somebody sends a complaint in, do you review it? And they said yes. They review every single one of them, and every single complaint gets an answer by an attorney. Well, what about you know, what time period? And she goes, well, most of them are handled within three months. And I said, okay, so that's most of them. Of the few that are not handled in three months, how long is there a time limit on those? And she said, well, of those, most of those are handled within a year. And I said, oh, great. Okay, great. But the ones that are left over, the ones that, you know, that are not part of that three-month crowd, three-month group and not part of that one-year group, the ones that are left over what is the time period on responding to a complaint from that? And she said, well, there isn't any. So she's acknowledging we just ignore some of them. Basically, yeah. <clears throat> and they're all kept private. They're not subject to, like, if you have a real complaint that's going to cause them problems, like the complaint that I filed is going to, if, if the complaint had no merit to it, they would simply be able to discount it. Right, they'd be able to respond to it and say, "We investigated it. There's nothing to this." But because my complaint, I believe, has merit, it also causes real problems to their, um, you know, their hole in the ground as far as, oh, we're the only ones in charge. You know, we're in charge. We're in charge. We're in charge. Um, there, it, it's just easier to just put that on the. Oh yeah, we're going to respond to that. And then they can say, look, we respond to every single one. It's just we don't have a time limit on when we have to respond. So everybody will be dead and gone in 80 years, and then we'll do a response. Yeah, if that. Wow. Right. I mean, it, it's just so insane how – I mean, I, I really have a connection to the framers. Like You brought up a little bit ago about um, petition for redress of grievance. Well, the reason why that's part of the amendments – is the people who wrote this, who thought it was really important, 
a lot of them were around like in 1774 when there was a petition for redress of grievance to the king from Congress over the king closing down Boston Harbor until every penny of the money for the tea was paid for. And th that was a big deal. I mean, the, the government was heavily invested in the, uh, uh, the West India Trade Company or whichever, West, West India. Anyway, it's, it, basically, the king was running a business. The business had a whole bunch of tea left over, and now it was being dumped on the American people. And there were taxes on that tea. And the, the tea that the American people wanted to buy, they couldn't buy because it wasn't taxed. They were, they were not allowed to buy. Even if they were willing to pay the tax, you had to buy the government tea. Um, and so they threw it all in the water. And then the king, when they say they, there was a group of people who we're all familiar with that, the Boston Tea Party. They throw the tea in the, in the water. The uh, king's response is to close down Boston Harbor, which hurts everybody. Now it's, you know, the entire Boston Harbor is shut down. And um, uh, the, the Congress sends to the king a petition for redress of grievance saying, hey, come on, this is, this is really unfair. This really hurts everybody. And, and the king is saying, nope, you can't have anything until I get paid my money on that tea at full market value. Um, well, the Declaration that, of Independence really kinda... is, is, a, is a litany of, of, of examples of the petitions that have gone unheard that led to the, what you talked about, the hot war. Right. I mean, that, that's what the Declaration is. This, there's a couple more paragraphs that I think are insightful here. This, this document goes on to say, while the commentators have discussed these, movement, uh, these movements from all angles, ranging from ridicule to outrage to fear— um, most of the mainstream pundits discount the powerful emotion that drives individuals from the fold of our everyday society and into the ranks of the modern patriots. As if being a patriot's not a good thing, is, is the right. intonation yeah. here. This guide uh, asks that our state courts not take these individuals and their problems and concerns so lightly. In 1928, Justice Brandeis said, quote, decency, security, and liberty alike demand that government officials shall be subjected to the same rules of conduct that are commands to the citizen. Now, I think that's fascinating that the, even the concept that there's a command to a citizen from government. Because right. the documents that so have these so-called commands are commands to the government. They are not commands to the citizens. They are restrictions upon the government and how it shall operate so that citizens can operate without commands. Right. They just, it's, even back in 1928, it was, uh, it was turned up on its head. In a government of laws, existence of the government will be imperiled if it fails to observe the law scrupulously. Our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher, for good or for ill, teaches the whole people by its example. End quote. The people who make up the movements that we are concerned with consistently speak out to say that our government today does not listen and no longer serves the American people. It exists to serve its own ends. The merits of that argument are not within the purview of this guide. <laughs> Conveniently, we're not going to address any of their concerns. We're just going to talk about how to get them out of your courtroom and get some money out of them. Exactly. So it goes on. Anyway, I just I thought that was uh, you know back in 1999 the the positioning of the state court systems to uh, you know not and of course it goes on to talk about posse comitatus and militias and all this stuff and just a whole well, this, know, which is not what we're this, about. No, not I mean as far as the militia, well, the constitutionally mandated militia. Yeah. I mean uh, that's 
that's certainly something very important. It has a, a valid place. And then what does it mean to be a member of that militia? It doesn't mean you're going with your friends out, you know, running around the desert with toy guns or, you know, whatever that it, 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 it has a very specific meaning and it is being a part of the militia is being a part of maintaining a free and open society. The problem right now is the federal government has, has been able to completely overthrow every single state government. And now the federal government is running all the state governments. And the federal government has a huge incentive to deny the citizens of the several states their citizenship, even though it's obligated to guarantee it to them. But the federal government has just this huge, incredible um, uh, motivation to impose U.S. citizenship on everybody. And that gives them plausible deniability that they can do anything they want. You know, I don't think this affidavit you wrote is is revealing any secrets, any secret strategy. No, no not at all. You know, it's we've talked about this many times. You, uh, so your intention is to. I'll read it, and then you can share with the listeners what your intention is, how you want to use it. I've got sure. it pulled up. Yeah, here. we can we can post it. So yeah, this affidavit accompanies my response to your demand that I produce a driver's license or other government issued identification. C A D M V license card number C five five nine five one one zero, which accompanies this document, is not valid. The consent associated with this license card has been manufactured by the state's coercive ability to prosecute. The social security number associated with CA DMV driver's license number C5595110 is not valid. See document number, and you give a document number CBE on file with social security, which we've read many times aloud. I am not federal personnel pursuant to 5 U.S. Code Section 522, 552A. The geographical location where you are detaining me is within the borders of California, as stated in the 1849 California Constitution. The geographical location where you are detaining me is not in the United States pursuant to any state or federal commercially regulated activity. See California Commercial Code 9307H. That one says United States is located in the District of Columbia. I do not consent to my presence in the United States for purposes of federal citizenship. I am a citizen of California pursuant to Article 4, Section 2, Clause 1 of the Federal Constitution. I am not employed by the state of California or any other government agency. See California Vehicle Code, Section 21052. The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment is directly applicable to the states for purposes of protecting the constitutionally secured rights of state citizens. See MAP v. Ohio, 1961. This affidavit executed March 21, 2017. Notice, if you intend to take any further enforcement action or continue your investigation of me in any way, I may I request you immediately call supervisor so I may speak with him or her. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> That's short and sweet. They can actually read that roadside. It might take them 45 seconds, but they'll read it, right. I think. Uh, well, I think they will, you know. And the whole point is, you know, the Birchfield case, that made it all the way to the Supreme Court on a fourth amendment violation right mm -hmm. even though they lost in the supreme court they did win uh kind of on the policy side of it this is following that same example i told you getting a driver's license is a pivot on the strategy it's not giving up it's a pivot i'd rather be in the trenches fighting with a license than in jail without one <laughs> if that makes sense absolutely um so if i get pulled over which 
you know, now I drive like every other LA citizen here. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get first, right? I'm looking for first place. Uh, if I get pulled over and I get a ticket, now the low risk, high reward mantra of the show is still employed. I'm no longer risking jail time. I'm no longer risking any of this, but I'm preserving all of the arguments from the years of fighting California and learning how to deal without a license and and reading about social security numbers and what it means, everything else. I'm preserving all of that because I don't want any of it. And I was really, um, uh, I, I, I think, encouraged by the use of the term manufactured in the uh, Birchfield case when Justice Breyer said, when they they talked they were talking about consent and we played it I think we played this section on the show but in mm-hmm. the oral arguments in the oral arguments they they talked about um, different ways that consent could happen and uh, I forgot exactly what Justice Breyer said but he basically created a scenario asking the attorney that would consent be you know given then and uh, of course, the attorney had no real answer for it, and the judge said, "Well, at that point, consent would have been manufactured anyway, so it wouldn't apply." And I remember that, you know, right? So that's why I've put that in there because now, if I get a, a speeding ticket, I'm going to bring one of what I think is an incredibly interesting defense that is going to lose through the California Traffic Court, then the Appeals Court, the California State Supreme Court. Then I have a shot to win at the federal Supreme Court. So this is just another um, position that runs concurrently with my present uh, uh, my, my present strategy of bringing my case directly to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I hope not to get a ticket. I'm not looking for a ticket. I'm, <laughs> but if I get pulled over, it's nice to know, hey, dude, I'm, I'm on game right now. This is my game right now. And if it's possible for me to pull a supervisor out and have these two guys know that I've told them straight up this license is not valid because it lacks my consent, and they continue with an arrest, which is the moment they put pen to paper, they continue with an arrest without warrant, they're violating the 13th Amendment by treating me like an employee according to California Vehicle Code 21052, the social security number attached to that driver's license is also um, tre- you know, considering me to be an employee of the federal government, and they're denying me citizenship in California, at least um, the, uh, the applicability or the, the effectiveness of being a citizen of California. So part of that preservation is if there's a win, I can go back and sue them personally for the damages that they have caused. And Title 18 is very clear that if two people work together, like if they're on the roads, and let's say it's Highway Patrol and they don't have an oath of office, there's no record of them ever properly occupying that. Which today all you've seen is record of the uh, commissioner, the leader of the CHP. That's it. So at that point, then if, you know, I'm going on, let's say there's a win at the Supreme Court level, Now I can go back and that's when I get to be the aggressor and go after what, what's happened. Not because it's a personal thing with the police, but man, it's a deterrent. If, if it gets out that somebody without a driver's license is able to sue under 
you know, for damages, for significant damages, a police officer, and then get him on not even being a police officer and win a, a monetary judgment for that, I think that would be have a very chilling effect on the government's just uh, unabashed overreach. Well, that, the, the difference, though, is that help. you're pursuing this with a piece of plastic under coercion. Right. Right. Yeah. So you now, said hey, you just I, said earlier, if a word gets out that somebody without a driver's license. Well, I'm sorry. What I guess when I use that term without a driver's license, I'm referring to if there's a win, that means immediately the driver's license, social security um, uh, accounts, those are closed. The records are destroyed. So now it's somebody without a driver's license would be suing these officers for their false arrest. And I think that you know that, us revealing this is not like uh, revealing any super secret strategy. I mean, this is this no. is the principle you stand stood on when you went and got the piece of plastic. We've talked about it many times. It's just I think this is the the uh, manifestation of that strategy is this this piece of paper, this affidavit, which you know I guess we will put that uh, in the uh, common law ID uh, section for those who donate to the show. Um, so you yeah, can see a perfect. copy of it, you know, and if you listen to the show, you can just type what you heard me read. Uh, and you know, I don't, I, the thing I would counsel you on Corey would be that, uh, if, and when this occurs, uh, that as you hand this to that, that CHP or other, uh, law, so-called law enforcement agent, um, that you record the fact somehow audio, audio, you know, audio or, oh, or video. Yeah. So there's evidence, of course. Then we get into whether or not, you know, what happened roadside can be admitted as evidence. You know, there's all kinds of discretion at the, in the, in the milking parlor of, oh, no, we're not going to worry ourselves with that. I mean, you've got, you know, half a dozen examples of how they changed the rules along the way and rewrote the ticket and, you know, covered up their mistakes. And just, you know, it just goes on and on. But, you know, uh, you've uh, shown that you have the fortitude to, to go the long distance, you know, much like a uh, cross-country runner. You know, it's it's given enough support, you know, um, you know, you can go the distance. So this is a good first step. Um, speaking of, uh, the courts, uh, operating and with uh, impunity and, uh, I'm going to play a couple clips from, uh, a guy named, uh, John Lamb. You ever heard of John Lamb? He's, I've heard the name, but I can't place yeah, it. Um, let me get these pulled up here and, and preview this a little bit for everybody. Um, you may have heard at the beginning of the, uh, of the uh, show at the end of the intro, I played uh, the following clip here. Um, Constitution, they told me, was not allowed. It was banned from the courthouse. I got a uh, email from Mary, uh, friend Mary in Florida, saying that uh, you know, check this out. And I go to one of these you know blogs and so forth, and I'm trying to track down. You know, that there's this whole story written that you know as if it's facts that the Nevada courthouse whatever the federal courthouse is called there where they're hosting uh last week Corey, uh the uh trial for the bundy ranch standoff right okay you, are you familiar with hopefully people remember this this is yes, in nevada yes. over the bureau of land management and and the and, and the uh, uh bundy family and and their standoff with all these people coming there and uh, people were on a bridge and it was armed citizens you know standing up peacefully against armed uh, federal agents and and there's four or five people on trial uh, in Nevada over that matter. And they've been detained since over a year now over this. And it's finally right, now coming right. to uh, a head in terms of this trial. So John is a, uh, 
uh, you know, self-described patriot and, uh, you know, gadfly of the courts. He's, he's one of the guys shows up and, and pays attention. And, and with the advent of uh, modern technology, he's uh, learned how to do Facebook Live. And he's been posting updates. And he stood outside the courtroom after he was uh, inside watching what was going on. And um, this is his... Uh, I'm going to play this right now. But I was, I was reticent to, to go with the story on our show and elsewhere that the Constitution has been banned from a Nevada courtroom until I had some evidence of it. And I still haven't seen a court order... But when you watch this video of, of John Lamb and you listen to him, I got to take him at his word. And I would say that uh, we would employ, uh, encourage listeners in Nevada and in, in Las Vegas, I think is maybe it's Vegas. I'm not sure where this is. Maybe it's Reno or this federal courthouse is. Um, we would we would encourage listeners of Agenda 31 that, that want to take a low risk, high reward activity to uh, go to the courthouse and test this out. So. There's there's a lot here. Uh, this is one one clips five, another clips like six or seven minutes. But I think it's il- illustrative of a lot of what we've been talking about here. Oops, once again, I forgot. Absolutely. To, yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it is, and it's uh, it, it just. I mean, if you look at the civil cover sheet of the district courts, uh, the federal district courts, in order to get into court. You have to sign all this stuff that basically says you're not a you're not a citizen under Article Four. That you're bringing all of this under the Fourteenth Amendment. And uh, what a what a great self you know um, self serving way is to get people to lose before you even start in court. Oh, yeah. In other words, lose. In other words, you're saying that hey, I am bending my knee to government. I am not the uh, people with the political authority to control government. I am just a servant of government is how, I mean, that that's what the civil cover sheet is and guaranteed every single one of these guys, I haven't looked at the paperwork, but, but I bet you'd be able to find in the charging documents and everything evidence that they are being charged as U S citizens oh, yeah. and that they're, you know, would certainly be a potential difference. They they would not allow uh, in this court the um, the the theory of an Article Four citizen, as far as somebody. Not even theory; it's fact. <laughs> it's right in the Constitution. It's just as much a theory as the theory of Fourteenth Amendment citizenship. How's that? Absolutely. And it's it's incredibly uh- self serving. And the only court that I've seen indications where uh, they're looking for somebody to bring in um, a case that would espouse Article Four citizenship or be relied upon as Article Four citizenship is in the Supreme Court. That, that's the only place where I've seen these kind of nods that says, hey, maybe somebody will bring a case like this. And I, I'm playing this because obviously these guys are, you know, in, in the barrel, so to speak, and, and they're in there because they're U.S. citizens and they haven't been able to thwart jurisdiction at the beginning of it. They're in there at the point of a gun, uh, these defendants. And I, I would propose to people listening that, you know, there's technically they might be guilty of something. I don't know. All right. They might be guilty of the, the crime they're charged with uh, during that Bundy Ranch standoff. Uh, and certainly it's a high profile enough uh, situation where the government doesn't want people standing up to them. And so these guys had to be, you know, you know, given the whip. That's for sure. If you're the government, especially when you listen to the, to the uh, uh, preface of the the anti-government handbook I just read. 
But I think that th- there's, a, there's a method to my madness of playing this, and I'll share it here. Just listen to this. I was in court over here before I went to Portland. Um, so it, it's, it's... The Portland reference is the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge standoff with Amon Bundy, Bundy's son. All right. In so, Oregon. In Oregon. So there's two trials going on simultaneously, one in Portland, one in Nevada. And this guy, John, is, has been going back and forth between the two. And so he's just recounting that he had been to Oregon for the last three weeks. Now he's back in Nevada for the fifth week of this trial. I mean, these judges have put themselves up as gods, and they are making these rulings without any law to back it. And um, I've been in court all over the country for years and years and years of other people's court cases, and I've never seen the tyranny that's going on in these last couple of court cases I've been. The things that have been overruled, the things that have not been allowed or have been allowed. The prosecution has had five weeks of um, government witnesses, solid five weeks of government witnesses here. They were supposed to end yesterday. They decided they needed these extra four witnesses, one today and three more after this, to take up the rest of the week until Friday. And um, these, they, Judge Brown complained that Ammon Bundy testified three days on the stand. We've had government witnesses testify that long here in Nevada. And, over, and each witness is bringing the same exact evidence just over and over again. Next week, this is the big shocker, next week there's no court here. The government's supposed to rest by Friday, and they're going to go have a dark week and let everybody rest for a whole week. Uh, the jurors can go home. Um, the prosecutors can go home and take a break before the defense team. But the defendants, these six men up here, have to go back to jail and sit in jail while they're waiting to start their case up again in a week. This kind of thing shouldn't be happening in these courts in America. These men should not be in jail this long without pre-trial or out of, without a bond. There really shouldn't be no such thing as pre-trial. It's not even constitutional. Um, they should be afforded a bond and let out while they're defending themselves. So next week, I, I'm over here in Nevada. We ha- I have nothing to do next week. We was not even notified soon enough because the court couldn't make up their mind what they wanted to do. And now we don't have no court next week, and we got to wait till the following week before the defendants can start up with their witnesses. The second thing is that the government thinks that the defendants should only need a week to um, bring up the evidence, uh, bring their witnesses and stuff. When the government's had five weeks and the defendants are only going to get one week, one week to bring out their counter, their witnesses, and... Um, they was prepared to go this week, so they call their witnesses, they get them all prepared from all over the country, and just like in Portland, we brought in 16 witnesses that couldn't even testify in Portland, and the government flew them in, bought their plane tickets, their hotels, and all the other stuff, and 16 witnesses in Portland were not able to testify from all over the country. This, this defense, how can they properly... De- I think he's jumping around here. I think what he's saying is the, the Portland, the prosecution got to have their witnesses on the stand, but the 16 that were brought on behalf of the defendants were not allowed to testify, as I think what he's talking about. ...themselves when they're not even keeping to the same rules and games the prosecution has already told them. So, it... Um, these, um, 
These defendants now have to wait another week and a half before they can start up with their their um, their witnesses, and they got to kind of get all that prepared. At least we know at this moment that that's when it's supposed to happen. And next week, there's no court over here. One of the other things that happened today, I went to court. It's been the first time I. So to recap that briefly, what he what I heard him say was that the defense was expecting to be able to call their witnesses next week, which is this coming week. Um, uh, or it might have been this past week because this is recorded on the 21st. My apologies. That would have been last month, the previous Monday. And so, you know, you're, you're the defense and you're organizing your people who have to travel in from other places and make arrangements. And then after five weeks and a little extra couple days that, that the prosecution threw in at the bequest of the ju- at the by the judge allowing it, the judge said, oh, you know what? We're going to skip next week. We're just going to take a break and then we'll do the defense uh, following week. So throwing everybody's schedules off kilter, just more hijinks inside the system there. Now, here's where he talks about the pocket constitution. Court over here in a few weeks. And I go into the courtroom just like I am right now with the Constitution in my pocket. Last time I went in this courtroom with this Constitution too. The marshals took this Constitution away from me and told me it was not allowed in the courthouse. That I had the right to take this Constitution back out to my vehicle or give it to one of the people standing out here in front in support or they would confiscate it or throw it away. I offered to, to give it to the defend, uh, to the marshals and said, well, you can just keep it yourself if you want it. And they said, no, they was going to throw it away in the trash. They let me go ahead and keep it, but not in the courthouse. I was not allowed to carry it anywhere in the courthouse. The Constitution, they told me, was not allowed. It was banned from the courthouse. These, um, these, these um, type of things are just, just wrong. I'm trying to read a message here real quick. So he, I, I just found this to be extremely compelling, and and anybody who's in Nevada listening to this, I, I would can you please go do some research and find out was there a court order? Did the court uh, Anna Brown issue some kind of uh, um, uh, you know written creed or you know screed or whatever you want to call it? We have one here in Scott County where uh, the so-called head uh, of the Seventh Judiciary wrote a, an administrative order banning cell phones from the courthouse, except unless you have a bar card and all kinds of nonsense about that. So I would love to see that written document from that judge that directed those marshals to ban a constitution from being brought in the courthouse. That is fascinating to me and should be headline news on Drudge and every other place in the world. That's incredible. And this guy, I, when you, I mean, I, I find John to be extremely credible just by watching him on his uh, Facebook uh, video. I don't think he's making this up. Uh, but let's get some more uh, corroboration here and, and go in yourself and, and have a friend watch you walk in and see if uh, you're, you're and I, I would venture to say that if they know you're coming in for the Bundy trial, they're going to preclude you from bringing the Constitution. They don't want jurors to look over and see that, you know, Thomas Jefferson's head on, uh, on your shirt pocket and be reminded of anything other than what the judge is telling them what to do. He goes on to explain more jury instructions here and more hijinks. This is, I think, worth checking out. It, um, yeah, I, I made the point while ago that the, the, the judge is overruling, uh, she's making the objections before the, before the defendants even had a chance to, make, um, to make, their, make their objections. The judge would object for the defense and then overrule it right away. This kind of stuff, you, you can't make this up. You, you have to be here to see this kind of stuff. It's, it's, this is what's being allowed because the people are allowing it. They're not standing up. Um, 
And I know these are my opinions and what I see here, but I wish more people would see it for themselves and stand up too. And we need to stop this stuff right now. And um, not allowing a constitution in the courthouse, telling me I'm not allowed to go in there with it, that I have to leave it outside. This is a public building, supposedly. It's, 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 a United, it's, it's on the United States soil. This Constitution's a part of our heritage. It's the United States Constitution, part of our laws. And they're not allowing this kind of stuff to happen. We had, um, I'll kind of give you a rundown of the court after my rant there. There was about um, um, 30 FBI agents um, present today, along with uh, the prosecutors. There was four prosecutors today. Um, uh, and then there was um, the 15 jurors, and we had um, 12 marshals in the courtroom. So it kind of gives you a rundown. That makes about uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 people approximately that was in the courtroom on the left side along with the jurors. There were seven supporters today, just seven. That's including myself. Seven supporters on the right side that was supporting these men. Um, there's six defendants. That's just almost just one supporter per, de per defendant. And I know it's been a long five weeks here, but we need more supporters here for these men so they don't get depressed. They can keep their morale up. Seven people. Now we had another, we have about a dozen people out here. Uh, we started out with uh, three or four uh, guys that are from Las Vegas and Prompt that came out here. And I know it's tiring for everybody, all the locals, but we need more supporters out here. And uh, right now we have probably eight or nine, ten people over there. I seen about a dozen people all ago, but um, we definitely need more supporters out here to keep these guys and know their morale up, to let them know that we um, haven't forgotten them, that we um, we are here to support them. I know that when I'm sitting in the courtroom, they look back and they see me, they smile, they 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 really appreciate the faces there and the friendly faces and the ones that the, you know seeing that there's people there that are backing them um, and that's one other thing too judge the judge up here told us that before the jurors came in that we were not to make and she mentioned this just to the seven of us that were sitting there and the defendants not to the not to the all the marshals not to the um, the FBI agents or the prosecutors she told us we couldn't we couldn't make any facial expressions, smile. We would just sit there and not make any expressions at all. And this is before court started that she even said, even the defendants, I'm going to warn you again, no facial expressions to, that the jurors can read or body language. She even mentioned the word body language, that no one could make anything. So we're over here, a small group of us all by ourselves, and we're not allowed to make any body language, facials, you know, without having threat of getting kicked out. And um, the government side over there, they're reading newspapers. They're laughing, uh, talking back and forth. And it's, it's, it's dis disruptive to me it was because I'm seeing that on the other side and the noise being made. The marshals are talking back and forth, coming in and out of the courtroom. So this is some of the stuff that I'm seeing here. And um, I know some of the others are seeing the same thing and um, just wanting to let you let you guys know what's going on. And Tara Tanny said.
So I, this, I don't think this guy's uh, uh, point can be more emphasized. You got 60 plus, 50 to 60 GovCo folks who are not admonished by the, the judge to, to keep a stoic, expressionless face. You with me, Corey? You probably get yourself muted. I'm, I'm here. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm here. I've who have who who are not admonished by the court to keep you know? I, I mean, I I've, I've sat in court proceedings and I've sat in a four day trial over a guy who was uh, uh for uh, accused of a felony for for brandishing a firearm on his own private property. I watched the jury the whole time. I had body language the whole time. I was in the front row. Uh, right. You know, it, it, really? You, you you mean the 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 observers can't have body language? I mean, th- that just in and of itself is, I, I, you know, think how stacked this deck is. If the case against these people was so solid, why would these tactics be employed? Yeah, well, it's not solid. I, I mean, you know? it's incredible. And, and, and the other thing, you know, and, and maybe I have not done enough research on the actual disposition of these cases. Maybe they've already been, you know, adjudicated or maybe these guys are free. I'm not sure. I need to do some more. I just didn't have time this morning. But this guy, I, I applaud John Lamb's efforts to, you know, low risk, high reward. He shows up with a piece of paper and a pencil and then goes outside with somebody with the camera and goes on Facebook Live and gets this out there. That's low risk, high reward. What if 150 200 people in Nevada came there and were just bogged and they all had pocket constitutions. You know, what were they going to do? Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, that would buoy the, 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 the jury would see 200 people standing there, but they'd be like, Whoa, wait a second. There, this is, there, there must be something amiss here. There there's there, the, the, the defendants have a lot of support. I mean, it goes a long way. That is peaceful, oh, sure forceful resistance right there. You know, I mean, this guy shouldn't be alone. There shouldn't be seven people there. What happened to all the so-called patriots who drove to the Bundy Ranch? Where are they during this trial? Well, to the, to their credit, they have families, they have jobs, they got to work for the first three and a half months so the federal government can get paid. You know, they, we haven't gotten there yet. We're we're almost there, Corey. Uh, and uh, you know, when you have a five-week trial, it's hard to stay engaged. Yeah. It, it's difficult. A lot of people can't afford to take five weeks off to attend a trial. I mean, that, that's very, very. Am difficult. I overreacting, Corey? That the Constitution was banned from a courtroom? Well, you know, <laughs> let, let's take a look at what the courtroom is. If if you heard that in a uh, and, and, and a the, military tribunal, yeah, yeah. somebody said, "Hey, you know, somebody that's an employee of the military says, I want to bring in a Constitution." And the military court martial, the the tribunal decides that no, you can't have a constitution in here. I don't think too many people would find that. Um, it, they would say, well, yeah, because the military operates off of the military uniform code of justice, right? You're right. Um, so you wouldn't. The constitution would have no place in a court martial for the military. Well, what if? You know, I mean, I realize this is a little bit of a stretch, but to me, there's a ton of evidence to support this. What if when all of the courts, every government apparatus that you see today is geared towards only servicing a U.S. citizen and Article 4 citizens are not welcome because they have their own and that U.S. citizens are in the same boat as if they were in front of a military tribunal in that um, the Constitution has no place for it even though it says district court of the United States and everything else, 
What if that's the case? What what if over the past 150 years, the uh, the adversary of freedom has been able to completely dismantle every institution of government that is there to secure the rights for an Article 4 citizen, at the same time replace it with an institution that looks the same, smells the same, but isn't the same, and the Constitution has just no place in it. And it's legal, you know, just like in that military tribunal worded. Well, the only place left that I can find would be the Supreme Court. And and so it it well, wouldn't be surprising to me to find a it, it would just simply be more no. evidence that that theory, which you know a lot of people think is crazy, but that that theory that Article Four citizenship is for an entirely different government You're that right. only exists in one institution. This is more proof of of what we've been asserting is 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 what I think we're trying to say. And I have to recount my own. Uh, experiences, Corey, three times I've been in a, in a so-called courtroom where three times I've heard the judge say out loud, even have one on, on tape, uh, the constitution has no place in these proceedings. Right. I've, I mean, so I need, I, I kind of should, you know, like get off my little shocked, you know, privileged deus here, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Well, this. Uh, so I want to play one more clip from John, and, and bear with yeah. me. This is again. This is how they, the witness they brought in, uh, Agent Willis from the FBI, and and of course the bias of this judge is if if John's accounting of what happened in the courtroom is. is but I mean, how many people have dealt with? I mean, you've seen it point blank. Judges are extremely biased. They're not. They're oh, not yeah. dispassionate. They're not objective. They're there to just make sure that they get the vig. That that they. I mean. But I will say now, somebody uh, Britt was in the chat room. The seven leaders of the Oregon standoff in uh, in, in uh, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge were uh, acquitted or exonerated by the jury. That is accurate. But, but they they weren't. That is accurate. It wasn't on a constitutional issue, is my understanding. It was on uh, adverse possession. That's, yeah, that's my understanding yeah. of it, which is really. You know, a brilliant way of arguing it, um, where now citizenship had no bearing at all. It, citizenship had nothing to do with it. It was uh, whether or not they, they were just in adverse possession. Yeah, we need to talk about that a little more. Um, I'm writing that down here. Adverse possession, yeah. So John Lamb is in Vegas dealing with the original Bundy standoff in Nevada over the Bureau of Land Management. And I don't know the exact names of those that are on trial, but I think that he names them in here. Just check this out. Week five over here in this trial. This trial started before the trial in Portland, and, um, and it's still going. The government here, the prosecutors, they are still bringing... Um, bringing government witnesses. I was told this morning before we entered the court that the government has three more witnesses after the one today. And uh, these witnesses have been taking hours and hours of testimony. They're not quick. They go over detail after detail and it is extremely boring for the, um, for the jurors and the ones that are watching there in court. And they go over and over and over again, the same evidence that's been heard before. So I'll give you a little taste of what happened today. The uh, FBI agent today, his name is FBI Agent Willis. Uh, this agent was also in Portland 
listening in on the trial multiple days over there. And um, I, I seen him myself over there. I sat in the same seating area with Agent Willis multiple times. Didn't really know who he was when we was over there in Portland, but he was there. And today he was a he was a government professional witness for the defense uh, for the government here. It um, he um, testified on a video, and um, they took this video and they took it clip by clip and broke it down in pictures and still pictures instead of a video. This agent was not at the Bundy Ranch. He has no first-hand knowledge, but now he has become a professional witness for the government on a video that Michael, uh, Dennis Michael Lynch and another Michael Flynn, um, those, there's two videos that two different reporters uh, put out. And he broke down these, uh, these videos still by still. And some of these pictures were taken even at 30,000 feet in the air. So as we're looking at a picture, I'm trying to give you the best example I can, but we're looking at this picture. Some of them you cannot see nothing except an aerial view looking down. And um, you can't see if a car is the size of an ant or even smaller. You can't make the make of it. You can't make out if it's a Ford, a Chevy, or what it is. But this agent would testify that he could see a human being down there and that he could know which human being it was. Uh, Scott uh, Drexler, Stephen Stewart, Eric Parker, um, Greg Burleson, Ricky Loveland. These are some of the names he would mention. And the defense objected over and over and over and over again. Um, over 50 objections. Towards the end, before lunch, the judge didn't even didn't even allow the defense to make an objection. She would make an objection for them and say, um, I'm putting an objection for the defense, for all of them, and I'm overruling it. She overruled every single objection, even the ones that she made for the defendants. She did not even allow them to make the objections before she made the objections for them and then just overruled it and allowed this evidence to continue. The defendants, some of the biggest things they were making notes of, uh, objections to, were that you cannot even see who in this picture, who that person is. There's no way. You can't tell if it's a cow. You can't tell if it's a bush or a tree. There's no possible way. 30,000 feet, some of the pictures were taken from a mile away. And this agent was still testifying. Yes, uh, Eric Parker is on the bridge over here. And he circled this bridge that was over a mile away. And uh, the judge was allowing this evidence to come in. She also told... Um, the defense team in front of the jurors that she trusted the jurors to make the right decision that they could decide if this was evidence or not that she did not have to make a ruling and dismiss this evidence that she was trusting the jurors to make that decision themselves and you got to realize this here is such a such a boring court case going on it's so slow monotone and so quiet that the jurors are falling asleep. There's no way they can catch all of this and even catch all these pictures. And they're going over and over and over again, the same pictures, the same thing that has been told almost five weeks ago at the first part of this trial. 
I watched this, this same evidence today, the very first week um, that I was in court over here before I went to Portland. Um, the uh, I'm, I'm doing a search for this current uh, trial, and, and there's not much up-to-date current information I'm finding readily. There, the charges are uh, against... Uh, he named him Gregory Burleson, Orville, Scott Drexler, Todd Engel, Richard Loveline, Eric Parker, and Stephen Stewart. Uh, they include conspiracy, firearm offenses, and assault on a federal officer. And, and I think what's going to it's going to come down to is whether or not these federal officers felt threatened or not. You've heard that, and that's just something they make up. Yeah. Well, you, you've heard the you know if you feel threatened, then you I guess you're then the other. If, anyway, the, these some of these people are admitting, yeah, I had a weapon, but I didn't, you know. Uh, threaten anybody with it i mean it's nevada you can't it's open carry right even on the federal plantation in nevada it's open carry so you know what forget article four for a second here whether or not the second amendment is protected even in the even in their own rules it's open carry right so i mean this is really getting down to trying to make a scapegoat out of out of these, these, uh, you know, and, and I haven't seen the the stills or the video that was shot from supposedly thirty thousand feet above. You can you can imagine the uh, one can imagine the that this guy was probably uh, uh, named a, a an expert witness in examining specs on a screen and saying, you know, yep, there he is, right there. That's the guy. <laughs> I mean, and and some of the advantage that I could see happening is that uh, outside of the purview of the court he's able to examine high resolution um, images that you can blow up and have a really good view. But then what's submitted to the court is low resolution. So you can't make anything out of it. All they can point is the bad stuff, but you can't reliably show anything that the other side, you know, might've been doing wrong with those images. Well, having read uh, jury instructions and seen juries be instructed, I can only imagine the box that that judge is going to try and put this jury in with regards to uh, how they're, you know, how they have to determine the, you know, it, it, I, I don't know, Corey, have you ever heard a judge say to a jury, you can determine if the prosecution's uh, presentation is evidence or not, but at the same time, how many times have what you've brought into the court been said, nope, no evidence? Yeah, yeah, or... They come up with something like, oh, you have to have an attorney. And then the attorney decides how your case is going to go. And now the attorney will not allow you to submit documents. So, yes, we are sitting I mean, here that happened. kibitzing that, and that, complaining about situations. But we're also uh, doing something to make a difference. And there's others that have done something to make a difference. And they include the people that have donated to the No Agenda. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Agenda 31. Uh, who have often donated to no agenda as well there there is a good crossover there yes i agree and uh we need to send out some article for karma to our supporters and they include uh let me pull this up where i can see a little better here uh they include uh lynn korf uh they include the life of the world they include 316 they include mitch uh, lamore Stuart brazell john roberts cody wooten Paul McCarthy, Jeff Moore, William, um, I can't read William's full name here. Hold on a second. Our, our system isn't that uh, modern, unfortunately. It's screenshots. William Hengliger, uh, I just butchered his name. Shay O'Brien, thank you, Shay, for the support. Christopher Barnard, he's a stalwart supporter. Uh, we have Jay Criswell, uh, Adrian Simmet, Dean Brown, 
Vital Nutrition Research is in again. Jason Burke, Lauren Alberts, and Scotty Carlson. Thank you, everybody, for your support for uh, having a strategy to make a difference. Your support helps Corey immensely. And, um, you know, he's continuing to refine his strategy. Um, we really didn't come to any conclusion, Corey, on whether or not uh, we have revealed our strategy, you know, I, I guess. Um, well, I think on this show, we pretty much, the since the the benefit of having other people be inspired to uh, aver Article 4 citizenship in their jurisdiction, that benefit, if that were to happen uh, in, like we say, one, one person in every county, that potential benefit far outweighs what you lose in explaining what your strategy is. I mean, there are times where in an acute position, I, I don't say things about my own strategy. But um, overall, it's pretty simple. The whole strategy is to inspire people that there is a way to identify yourself differently than the way government has told you your entire life you have to identify yourself. And by averring Article 4 citizenship, you are improving your political standing. And, and the shit's one chess, things, it ain't checkers. That's right. And you know, one of the things to think about, if you ask the average American, when you deal with government, do you feel like a first-class citizen or a second-class citizen? <laughs> That's a great question. Right? I would say most Americans would say second-class citizen. And then if you ask that person, well, what if you could make some changes in your life and now the government would treat you like a first-class citizen? Would you do it? And I think quite a few people might. In fact, maybe I should go out to Venice Beach and ask people questions like that and get some video and see what happens. But the whole idea is, is presenting the evidence that it's possible to make changes in your life to where you are identifying yourself as a first-class citizen instead of a second-class U.S. citizen. Here, here, and uh, we we send out Article Four Karma to all those supporters. You, if you haven't supported the show, if you haven't supported the website or the podcast or Corey's efforts, you can still do that at Agenda31.org in the upper uh, upper navigation menu. There's subscription levels on the far right. There's a donate now button. You can donate a single uh, amount at just a one time donation. You can subscribe to a monthly. Uh, recurring subscription for as low as $3 to as much as 31 to as much as $300, depending on what your appetite is for uh, holding government accountable and having a strategy to make a difference. Um, a couple other technical notes. Uh, the, the stream that you're listening to right now, agenda31.org slash stream, I do have a uh, couple episodes in the queue there all the time playing over and over. And I'm remiss. I need to get the most recent episodes on there. I apologize. I'll get that up to date. So when you tune into the stream, you're going to, you know, you invariably hear us on a show and it could be three or four weeks old, but you can always go to the uh, website, agenda31.org and just listen to a show uh, just right there independently, right on the, the show notes. You click on the show title, the player's right there in the, uh, in the, on the page. You can download it locally, just play it at your own leisure. Um, you know, stop and play whenever you want. You can play it right over the internet and stream uh, in real time, or you can subscribe uh, through, through the RSS feeds to your various, you know, whether it's a, a, um, a iTunes or a Google's uh, Android uh, podcast player that you might have on your phone or on your laptop or your computer. Or your tablet. You can always subscribe and never miss uh, one of our episodes. So we greatly appreciate everybody's support uh, for Agenda 31. And of course, you can hear us on the playback on the No Agenda Stream at noagendastream.com every Sunday. Uh, they're now doing their show live, Curry and Dvorak, their deep media state uh, 
uh, assassination. They, they run 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Central, and then we are played right back after their show is over at 2 p.m., and we do enjoy the feedback we get from the Gitmo slaves tuning in at the No Agenda stream right after the No Agenda show. So uh, you've been listening to uh, the uh, non-advertiser-friendly broadcast of Agenda 31, uh, the lowest risk Highest reward podcast in the universe. This has been Todd McGreevy and Corey Ibe on April 2nd, 2017 with episode 126. Corey, lately I've been uh, checking out a lot of uh, uh, a new artist to me, Rory Gallagher. You ever heard of him? Musician? I, I've not. I've yeah. heard of Gallagher, but yeah. that's the comedian. Yeah, no, I don't think there's any relation. Good Irishman, Rory. He died in 1995. He was a recording artist in the late 60s and all the way through the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, just a phenomenal guitarist. I'm learning a lot about him. This is just a teaser. Uh, it's called um, No Peace for the Wicked. I encourage you to check out little Rory Gallagher. Thank you for listening, everybody. And keep asking yourself, what is your strategy to make a difference? No peace for the wicked.
Subscribe, share, and support at Agenda31.org. Okay, guys, let's get out there and make a difference. You know what to do.